coming at you from the We Dessert Studio in Houston, Texas. You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 61 of The Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Statton, and I'm joined this week by Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton. And guys, I can say that it's finally nice to be back stateside here in the United States doing this podcast at the We Dessert Studios with you both. Uh, I'm curious, what has happened in the last two and a half weeks since I've been gone, especially in the college football world where upsets are happening almost on a constant basis? Yeah, no upsets with my Cougars. That's really what I care most about at the moment. That's about the only team at the moment that I do kind of identify with as my own and still say we, which is pretty bad journalistic practice. But uh, but as long as they are staying the course, uh, I'm going to be all right. And there was a pretty dicey situation there uh, in that last game, but uh, they turned around in the second half, came out with a 35-point 30, win, something like that. So I, I was I was watching high school football simultaneously, but uh, you know my heart's with the Cougars. So as far as I'm concerned, it was a great week in college football as long as U of H wins. Yeah, and let's talk about uh, the Louisville game. I mean, the biggest upset over a top five team since what, like the 1940s, uh, just a totally insane game. Uh, right now, I think the game of the year to watch if Houston and Louisville keep going is the Houston Louisville game. And because uh, both right now are seemingly playoff bound if they uh, you know continue in their current trajectories. Um, similarly, Baylor, my Bears are struggling. Uh, they they look sloppy in the last two games against uh, real pretty poorly rated opponents, and uh, I'm sort of wondering what the season's going to look like for them here going forward. Uh, a lot of sloppy offensive play. Defense it is improved, though, which is a huge plus, but um, otherwise, I'm not too optimistic about my Bears going into the, the rest of the season. Yeah, kind of interesting that you mentioned Baylor. Again, they had the uh, the win over Rice on Friday night here at Rice Stadium, but uh, they didn't look sharp. Seth Russell definitely looked off, and uh, the Bears actually play uh, their first conference game this week against Oklahoma State. Uh, the Vegas line actually opened at Baylor as a 10-point favorite. Uh, so I, I think that's going to be interesting to watch and see how that line moves throughout the week. But uh, Jeremy, you had mentioned Louisville and uh, their big win. That was actually the largest margin of defeat over a number two team in the country since 1944 when I believe Army beat Notre Dame. So quite the significant win there. And uh, Kevin, I know you are going to be circling this game on your calendar, and that's Thursday, November 17th at 7 p.m. at TDECU Stadium here in Houston, Texas. As the number three, as it is right now, Louisville Cardinals will play your Houston Cougars, uh, which are currently ranked number six. So a lot of excitement uh, within the city of Houston in terms of uh, football, especially for the Texans, who knocked off the Kansas City Chiefs on Sunday to move to 2-0 and on the season. But uh, diving really quickly back to college football, you'll recall just a few episodes, we decided that we were going to make a, a friendly wager, if you will, and pick several games throughout the year, uh, that we were going to uh, pick several games throughout the year, and then the winner would have coffee bought for them for the entire year. And uh, neither of you have been keeping tally, so I just want to, before we actually dive into anything, where do you think you stand? Uh, I think I'm number one. Uh, I feel pretty confident about my picks. Uh, you know, I have a system uh, that I am adhering to, and so I think that it would be an absolute disgrace, and I'm going to go have to check the math if I'm not in first place. Uh, going on pure intuition in my contrarian nature, uh, I don't think I'm doing too well right now. So uh, <laughs> I think I'm probably close to the bottom. Interesting takes from you guys, and uh, keep in mind that uh, one of the game changers is picking teams outright. And it, it is worth noting that uh, Jeremy for week two actually forgot to submit his picks. Uh, so he has a, a big fat zero for week two. I will go ahead and give you the point totals really quickly. Uh, Dolores, who has submitted picks via text message, uh, has eight points. 
Uh, Jeremy, you have nine points so far. So despite missing a week, you have nine total points. Uh, myself, I was actually tied with Kevin for last place. Uh, heading, or I was tied with Kevin after week two for last place. We had a combined, or we had three points each. Uh, but this week, I actually kicked it up a notch uh, thanks to Cal's straight up win over Texas, which I actually called last week on the podcast. And so I am currently leading after week three with 10 total points. So myself at 10, Jeremy at number two with nine points despite missing a week. Dolores checks in at number three with eight points. And Kevin, sorry, man. Oh, man. Okay, so I'm not confident with the math there. I'm going to go back and check. I have my picks, and uh, I need to see everyone else's picks. I need this to be above board because there is some chicanery going on. Uh, I I clearly should be leading this thing. But I appreciate your diligence in keeping up on that when the rest of us did not. Yeah, so you actually had uh, one correct pick in week one, and that was the Coug straight up. So you got two points for that. Uh, Week two, you had one correct pick. That was uh, the Baylor game. You actually said that SMU was going to cover the spread, so you were correct in that assessment. This week, you did pretty well. Uh, You had four points, so uh, quite a good week. And uh, right now, uh, you know, we're very, very neck and neck. And uh, we'll definitely be following this as we uh, progress throughout the football season. But uh, in terms of the Texans, uh, we have a great interview lined up here in just a few minutes with John McClain from the Houston Chronicle. Also, we've got uh, a solid interview with two Paralympic athletes, Matt Stutzman, who is the armless archer. If, If you guys haven't seen him, Google Matt Stutzman on YouTube. He has no arms. He's one of the best archers in the world. He actually holds the Guinness Book of World Records for the most accurate shot with a compound bow. And we also have Brad Snyder, who is a uh, Paralympic uh, world record holder uh, in the pool. He actually lost his eyesight, I believe, on September 7th, 2011, after stepping on an IED, uh, serving our country in Afghanistan. And less than a year later, he won gold in London and uh, came home with three gold medals in Rio de Janeiro. So I'm going to have that interview here shortly. But, uh, you know, I, I've alluded to this the past uh, few days, Kevin. Uh, one of the things that I was really disappointed about in Rio de Janeiro in general was a lack of fine desserts. Yeah, so I have uh, I have my issues with our listeners. I'm glad they listen. They have not been great about giving us the iTunes reviews that we crave so deeply, but they have been good this week about going into We Desserts at 3411 Kirby. I've heard from the proprietors, uh, Jen and Penny, there that there have been a number of Weekly Brew listeners stop by, get their 10% discount, and you really can, uh, you know, the sky's the limit there. You can get whatever you want that's tasty. You can special order stuff. They're professionals. They're really talented. So go by there like uh, the other good listeners did this week and, uh, and patronize that establishment because they are kind enough to help put us on the air and provide us with this very nice studio and uh, all the equipment that we have. So certainly uh, go spend some of your hard-earned money there if you like things that are sweet. And if you don't, I don't know what to do for you. Definitely check out We Desserts at 3411 Kirby. All listeners of the Weekly Brew podcast get 10% off. So just tell tell Penny and Jen at We Desserts that the guys from the Weekly Brew sent you by. And actually, this past weekend, uh, both myself and Jeremy were at a wedding for two of our Baylor friends. And uh, there was no We Desserts there. So that was, one, very disappointing. But uh, two, Jeremy, uh, you actually missed the ceremony. You were 15 minutes late. Is that right? I, I did not miss a ceremony. I was there in the back. You just didn't see me. Um... I was, of course, there in spirit uh, with my brother Harambe. You know, we were we were both just chilling out in the back, and I just uh, decided to appear at the reception uh, conveniently in person this time. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I did miss the ceremony, uh, but it was convenient because as I was getting up on the uh, the elevator, everyone was walking out to the cocktail hour. So, uh, yeah, it was a little a little embarrassing, but uh, the night itself it did not go too bad after that. So, um, a pretty good Saturday night overall. I do wish I did have some wee desserts 
right now to nurse uh, this hit, this hangover I'm currently experiencing. Um, so, but yeah, it was a totally crazy night last night. Okay, get this. I've, I am 30 years old. I've never been invited to a wedding. What is the deal with that? I celebrate love in all of its many forms. I would I would be the most proud person in the room, and no one has invited me to a wedding, not one time. I can't imagine why that would be. Wait, are, are you serious? Absolutely serious about this? I'm 100% serious. I don't know what to say. We have mutual friends, Austin. None of them have invited <laughs> me to their weddings. Well, Kevin, when I if I get married, I will invite you to my wedding. How about that? I appreciate that. I, that means a lot to me because it would be the first Kevin, time. Kevin, I'll do you one better. I'll put you in my wedding and make you pay money to be in my wedding. <laughs> Is that how it works? I don't even know. I don't I'll make you how these things work. I don't that. even feel like a grown up. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's 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 terrible. Like if uh my groomsmen are all sort of cursed with spending what, at least two hundred bucks a pop for the suit that they have to buy to be in my you know, be in a wedding. It's it's really kind of a kind of a lame thing to be in a wedding. But it's great to be invited to a wedding. So outside of weddings, outside of we desserts, we want to make sure that you follow us on our social media channels. Just search weekly brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can also follow our website, weeklybrewcast.com. We post great content there each week. And uh, each episode is going to be pushed directly to your inbox. We highly recommend that. But uh, as mentioned a few moments ago, we have a phenomenal interview with John McClain from the Houston Chronicle. He's actually joining us for the fourth time on this podcast. A great interview that Kevin hosted with him uh, discussing the Houston Texans, also some of the bigger issues right now in the NFL. So we'll hear that in just a few moments. Also, stay tuned as I uh, speak with Matt Stutzman and Brad Snyder from Rio de Janeiro. Spoke with them on Friday prior to heading back to the United States. So without further ado, we have a packed show on deck. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. We welcome back into the Weekly Brew Podcast, John McClain, the resident uh, Texans and NFL guru, writer for the Houston Chronicle, also a burgeoning movie star with a ton of credits here. Looks like uh, Secretariat, The Rookie, Longest Yard. I mean, there's just so many movies. What's it like being uh, one of the most well-respected NFL writers in the city and a guy that shows up in movies all the time, John? Well, I wouldn't know about uh, the well-respected part based on the, the emails and the texts and the tweets I'm told I get, even though I've never looked at Twitter, but. I do spend a lot of time tweeting, but I do. I am very fortunate to have lasted 38 years on the NFL and 41 at the Chronicle, and I appreciate you guys having me on. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure. So it's early in the season yet, but we do have our first real football action to kind of analyze and look over. And I think the Texans were encouraging early on in that victory over the Bears there. The, the thing most people I think are concerned about, of course, is Brock, Ice, Brock Osweiler. And uh, and I think we saw some chemistry between Osweiler and Will Fuller. So to you, how good did Will Fuller look in that first game against the Bears? And then what kind of a difference does it make uh, with DeAndre Hopkins having Will Fuller as an option there as well? Look at the option last year was Nate Washington, who spent one year here and had dropped six passes over the course of the year. The problem with Fuller, you know, is, is he is, you know, in the preseason game that counted, the third one against Arizona, which is the dress rehearsal. He had a great game, but he dropped what would have been an 84-yard touchdown pass, perfectly thrown by Osweiler. Then in the victory over Chicago, he dropped – a perfectly thrown what should have been an 83-yard touchdown pass, but he came back and he made a great catch on a goal line, great catch on the sideline, and then took a quick screen and ran through the field for a touchdown. So he's got all kind of ability, and the speed is just phenomenal. When he blew by the corner on the long one that he dropped, he the corner was 10 yards off, and it snapped the ball. He just started back backpedaling. And you'll see that a lot. So what has to happen is 
the opponent has to shade a safety to that side of the field. And then if DeAndre Hopkins is going to be double with the other safety, that clears the entire middle of the field by when they're three wides as Braxton Miller, when they've got a tight end, it would be a tight end. And also if they keep the safety over the middle, then that frees up DeAndre Hopkins. So having another weapon means that Hopkins can't get all the focus. Well, they can do it, but they've seen already how dangerous Fuller is. And after the opening weekend, the only rookie who was more impressive was Philadelphia corner quarterback Carson Wentz. Pundits love to talk, and we got two guys that I think some pundits have called maybe cast-offs, and then obviously some pundits thought would be successful in Brock Eisweiler and Lamar Miller. So Lamar Miller had a lot of work, uh, 28 carries, I think four receptions. I believe your article put him on pace for something like 512 touches, which I think uh, I don't think he's necessarily going to get there. But you mentioned that the Texans have rushed 1,058 times in the last two years, which ties Seattle for the most in the NFL. At this pace, will Miller stay healthy? And why did Miami not give him that much work? Nobody knows why the Dolphins didn't give Lamar Miller more work because every time he touched the ball a lot, they won. But it was only like five times in four years. So I guess that's why they all lost their jobs there. But that was mystifying. But it meant he was going into his fifth year, and he's only 25 years old. And the one thing that was interesting about the Chicago game is he – his longest run was 12 yards and people think he's just a breakaway runner because of his speed, but he weighs 220 pounds. He's lost five since he came from Miami. So he can run between the tackles. The run blocking was okay at times. Other times he got hit in the backfield, but the bottom line is they were moving. They were moving the line of scrimmage. As Bill O'Brien says, if the line of scrimmage is being moved forward, then you keep running the ball and help them control the clock for more than 36 minutes. Miller's running. And then Osweiler, because he takes that quick three-step drop, if his guy's not open down the field, he checks down for a short pass that's like a run. You don't want to do that on third and long, but on other downs, it's like a running play. So that allowed them to control the clock. And Bill O'Brien is all about clock control because when they do it, nothing bad comes from running. I'm surprised more teams didn't emphasize it because the top three backs, in my mind, Adrian Peterson, Ezekiel Elliott, and Todd Gurley, all were totally shut down. So Osweiler said about Miller, it's a lot of fun watching the guy run from the field level. He runs hard and finds little creases that maybe other backs would, and he does some special things. So just in this limited amount of time we've seen him in real NFL action, would you say that it's fair to say he does some special things and he might be a special player for this offense? Well, he should be. He could be a special player if he can break long runs. He's the fastest starting running back this city's ever had. Now, Arian Foster, you know, Arian was not a breakaway back. Every once in a while you'd see him get loose for 40 45 yards, but he would never be able to go the distance. I can't wait to see Miller get enough room to to go go deep. And their offensive coordinator, George Godsey, said a long run is not just responsibility of the running back in the offensive line. The other blockers have to do a good job to free him up. And it's going to happen. I mean, he's had 97 and 85-yard touchdown runs in the last two seasons. So that means at some point he's probably going to get at least one, and the defense is aware of that. But uh, Miller, he's also an outstanding receiver. Now, he had four catches, didn't have any yards, but every year in Miami he increased his catches. He's a three-down back just like Aaron Foster. He's good. 
at blocking, picking up the blitz, I believe. Pro Football Focus last year had him as third, third best running back at picking up the blitz. So he's a he is just like Arian Foster as far as if he gets the, if he can handle the workload, he will get it. So Osweiler, I think, is fighting not only the expectation that he helped this team win, but also the massive paycheck that he's being given. Uh, again, very early returns, limited sample size. But were you encouraged by what you saw? And do you think that he's going to live up to these uh, enormous expectations that have been placed on him? Never understood why everybody makes basis performance on money. If you've got the money and you need the position, spend it. What's the alternative? I've seen some national media people throw out names of other journeymen like they've had the last two years, saying they would be better to do that than if Sy spent all that money on Osweiler. Well, they had it to spend. They had planned to spend it. They had a plan when it came to cap room to, if they couldn't get somebody in the first round, then to have the money in case a quarterback became available in free agency. Nobody thought he would be available. Everybody thought Denver would re-sign him and the Texans outbid John Elway to get him, and Osweiler started off very mediocre in the first preseason game. Then he improved you know, against uh, New Orleans and and uh, Arizona. And then in this game, if if Fuller had not dropped that ball, he would have had three touchdown passes and more than 300 yards, and everybody would be talking about how great he played. But the fact is, that pass was perfectly thrown. Two knocks on him at Denver. He held the ball too long, and he couldn't throw deep. He has been outstanding, for the most part, throwing the ball down the field. And he has gotten rid of the ball quick. Because in Denver, he said, well, people didn't know what my my call, the play call was. They don't know what my progression reads were about holding the ball. So George Godfrey, the offensive coordinator, done a tremendous job of not doing the five- to seven-step drops because they don't have the offensive line to hold their blocks long enough. So it's three steps. Ball's got to come out. If it doesn't, then you throw it away and live for another play. And Osweiler has picked up this system, and it is a complicated system that gives the quarterback a lot of freedom at the line of scrimmage. And Bill O'Brien says to think like a coach in this system, you've got to spend a lot of time watching tape and he does, not only at the facility where he's the first from there at 5.30 in the morning and the last to leave, but he also spends a lot of time doing it at home. Well, that's certainly encouraging. I think another thing that's encouraging is a guy that people were talking about being potentially a bust, Jadeveon Clowney, who played the entire Bears game at defensive end, was very effective. Um, I think it's encouraging, but uh, is it because of where he was in terms of the position he was playing? Is it because he's made some progression and we can expect him to be a versatile defender? You can play at a couple different positions. What do you think is the uh, the long-term projection here for Clowney based on that game? Well, I will say this. People call him a bust or clueless about the NFL, and I know a lot of people have done that because injuries don't create a bust. You know, a lack of performance creates a bust. And when he was healthy last year, he played the run really well. He was second on the team in quarterback hits and had four and a half sacks, even though he started 13, came out of three, missed the playoff game. And they put him at 3-4 defensive end. I have a story Sunday talking about that move and why a 270-pounder can play defensive end in a 3-4 that is traditionally for a 300 to 315-pounder in because they have to go head up on the tackle and it's such a physical position. And uh, they, they're they playing coy about whether he'll continue to do it, but I'd be stunned if he didn't because it allows them to get Clowney, Watt, 
Simon and Merciless on the field in the base defense. Otherwise, you have one of the linebackers sitting out. And Simon does a great job of setting the edge on the strong side because he's a 260-pounder who's also good against the run, and he can drop into coverage where you want. Merciless rushing all the time because he's become the best pass rusher in the league with 17 sacks over the last 14 games down the playoffs. But this clown, he had a he had a sack, he had four tackles, and he had three quarterback hits, tying Watt for the most on the team. And the coaches said he played really well. And after going back and watching the, the game three times, I saw all the things that he did that didn't come out in the stat line in which he would flush players to the side to somebody else where the runner would have to adjust because of him or quarterback would have to get rid of the ball quicker or go to the other side. So he he figured into the way, figured into that game in ways that don't show up. And that when you do that, why would you move you to any other position? That's a fair point. And, uh, and you spoke about Whitney Merciless there, the outside linebacker who, after week one, was named the AFC Defensive Player of the Week, had two sacks and went over the Bears. Uh, first time he's won the award, actually. And I remember he, he said afterward, it's cool, I got some bragging rights, and then he said, I blew one or two assignments. And I got to say, from my perspective, I love to hear a guy, when he's getting an individual award, go back to his own performance and assess what he could have done better. I think it's an encouraging sign for this defense. What do you think? Texans are very good at that accountability because their coaches stress it. And Merzlis, since the sixth game last year, has been a sack machine. He had none in the first five. And he plays the run well, and O'Brien says nobody. How it works. And one of the things that happened, I guess, is not only did Romeo Cornell figure out how to use him, but Merzlis, a little light went off in the system, and he's able to react instinctively instead of thinking. And this Terry's been on – you know, going back to that sixth game, not even Von Miller, who played two more games in the playoffs, has as many sacks as he does uh, over that span. And you, he said in the Bears game, he didn't get doubled once. Watt always, almost always gets doubled unless it goes to the other side. And Clowney ran into double teams a lot because he was on the line of scrimmage, but that freed up Merciless, and he's got to beat the one-on-one block. You know, you think there might be 70 plays, and all you got to do is get a quarterback sack one time, and you're on a pace for 16. So uh, he's been very good at that, and everybody talks about how far he's come in his career, and that bodes well for Clowney, too. It took Merciless to six games into his fourth year, and Clowney's just played the first game of his third season and injured a played career so far. Very encouraging signs all around for the defense. One not-so-encouraging sign, I think, is Brian Cushing being out. Um, probably not a shot given his history. I know when I heard about that injury, I was not um, overwhelmed by surprise or anything. One thing I didn't know, I think Aaron Wilson wrote about this, was Bernard McKinney gets the uh, the communication device, which I didn't really realize how that worked. What, what kind of an impact does that have, having to switch the guy who's you know getting the calls from the coaches on the field and kind of controlling the defense? Well, there's a difference with Cushing in his eighth year and McKinney in his second year, but McKinney doesn't come off the field. Max Buller has the backup now. McKinney had the backup to Cushing. And he has, uh, obviously, they think he can handle that part, even though he's a second-year guy. And it says a lot about the confidence they Romeo Cornell has in, in McKinney. Two times in that game Sunday, he just smashed Jay Cutler. Didn't get a sack. Cutler got rid of the ball. But McKinney at 6'4 and 260, he's big as a 4'3 defensive end. 
and and he's got the shortest path to the quarterback from the inside. So he's become a good pass rusher. And um, Max Bola, who has replaced Cushing, he came in after that first series, and he was in in the second half when they were great and limited the Bears to one crossing midfield one time on seven series and 71 yards. And so Bulla, well, it was undrafted free agent, but he was a great player at Michigan State, and he's improved a lot, and they like him a lot. So he was on the field when they played their best defense. Everybody felt terrible for Cushing. He was in good shape. He has what is a partial tear of a of a ligament, the MCL, because they cut, it's a grade two sprain, which is a partial tear. So he'd be back in four to six weeks. It depends on how long it's swollen and how about his rehab. But they still need him back sooner rather than later. Yeah, no question about it. So let's talk. Let's talk a bit about the culture of the NFL because the NFL fined uh, DeAndre Hopkins for wearing Yeezy cleats. I'm, I'm only vaguely aware of what that actually means, but I did see some photographs of them. I guess it's Kanye West's uh, style or whatever. But is it? It feels to me like the NFL is just light years behind the NBA in terms of like uh, individuality or fashion or kind of creating these cool um, icons. You know, I, I was sort of surprised to find that they find him for the uh, for wearing those cleats. I mean, what do you make of that? Well, they find every player. Apparel companies pay a lot of money for, to be represented in the NFL more than any other sport. And when you wear something you're not supposed to, those companies that are paying you millions and millions per team, uh, they get upset. So he got fined six grand. They have a uniform cop, and the uniform cop watches your socks, your shirt, everything. I thought it was interesting. A.J. Boyer was fined 6700 $15 for a socks violation, and he appealed, and he won his appeal and was fined $1. I have never seen that ever. But, you know, they, they a lot of charities make a lot of money on uniform violations. Now, they didn't fire, they didn't find a couple of players for 9-11 tributes, but uh, next time somebody comes back and has a tribute, you know, like say Colin Kaepernick does it, are you going to find him? Because you either have a rule or you don't. And I'm glad they didn't find them for 9-11, but somebody else will come back and say, well, hey, you didn't do it then. Why are you doing it now? And they'll have another controversy. You know, speaking of 9-11 and Colin Kaepernick, you know, that's been kind of a big controversy. I know that even the, the Chronicle, Adam Coleman, has asked me to watch, you know, the high school players that I'm covering, saying, like, is anybody kneeling for the anthem? That's a big talking point. We want to write about it. We want to discuss it. And I think that in that uh, sense, it's been a success. People are talking about it. But in other sense, it's caused a lot of outrage. I've seen it on Twitter. You know, I've heard people talking at games and stuff. It's just a, an enormous amount of vitriol uh, for these protests kneeling during the national anthem or what have you. I, first of all, I haven't seen any Texans doing it. I don't anticipate any Texans doing it. It doesn't seem like the kind of place that's going to happen but uh, but what do you what do you make of this uh this protest culture and do you think it's uh been successful or or uh been good well first of all i put it right up there with the flake gate on things i'm tired of hearing about you know i'm i want to play i want to concentrate on football but i was a teenager in the 60s when there was a different protest every day and most of them were violent and people got hurt and killed and the thing i like about this there's not violence and the idea, it has it worked? Yes, it's worked because it's called attention to things. And a lot of people, including Colin Kaepernick and the 49ers, they're supposed to put up $2 million to charities. And that's what you do. You let your actions, you know, if you want to help, step up and do things that'll help uh, the oppressed. The only thing I disagreed with, I disagreed with 
two things Kaepernick did. I didn't like the original sitting. I'm glad he talked to Nate Boyer. Nate Boyer suggested, why don't you go to a knee instead of sitting because the sitting is so insulting. And he agreed. Now others have joined and uh, others are raising their fist. And um, I, I, it got people talking, and that's what protest is all about. And the thing that I didn't like was him wearing socks that had p- police's pigs because he's painting a broad stroke. And, and there are a lot of police that are not like that. There are a lot of police that help white people, black people, Hispanics, Asian, everything. And to paint a broad brush like that, I think, is reprehensible. And then he wore a Castro shirt. I never understood that. Never saw any comments because he's concerned about the oppressed. How many dictators have been more oppressive than Fidel Castro through the decades? So I didn't understand that. But since then, you know, he's 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 met it head on. He does news conferences. That's the idea to get people to talk. Others in other sports are doing their own little protest, and hopefully it will help. But um, they say they want to see improvement. I don't know how you measure improvement in the United States. It's almost like it's very subjective. It's up to each person. After a while, the media will be tired of writing and talking about it, and nobody will pay attention to it because we'll move on to the next controversy. That's a good point. I didn't even know that about the uh, the Castro shirt. That's interesting. Well, one one final question for you. Uh, you know, we're a Houston podcast. We love Houston things. Uh, Case Keenum, have you been? Uh, I you know, I don't know. You're not a U of H guy necessarily. I know you went to Baylor, like Austin, but uh, but do you do you kind of follow, keep up with Case Keenum? What's going on with the Rams? And were you were you dismayed to see his uh, his first game out there? I keep up with every team, and I watched that game. And last season, Case, I believe, was three two as a starter down the stretch. So the idea. Is him to babysit Jared Goff, fill in, you know, don't lose the game, rely heavily on the defense and the running of Todd Gurley. But Case played terrible, and uh, Gurley couldn't run because once they knew they couldn't throw the ball and the Rams got ahead, I mean, the 49ers got ahead, they faced a lot of eight-man fronts. Now the Rams host Seattle in their first game. In recent years, they've played very well against Seattle. Don't know why, but they have. But I know this, the Rams and the Browns have one way to go, and that's up. Now, whether they will stay down there in the pond scum, I don't know. But right now, those two teams were just horrible, easily the two worst in the NFL. And for Case Keenum's sake, I hope they play a lot better. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> well, John, it's always a pleasure. Uh, there's really no one we'd rather talk NFL with, and we appreciate your time. Of course, we want the listeners, uh, frankly, if someone's just started having a Twitter account and they have one person they're looking to follow, we think it ought to be you. Um, how can they find you? As McLean, M-C-C-L-A-I-N underscore on underscore NFL. McLean underscore on underscore NFL, then go to cron.com or HoustonChronicle.com. I think I'm just about everywhere. Chronicle also has a TV show. I'm on every every uh, Sunday night after Sports Sunday on Channel 2. And then I'm on Fox Sports Southwest pregame before all Texans games. And I do, I'm on 610 six times a week. So, I'm lucky I've still got a job, and i got a lot of them. <laughs> well, the Chronicle now, my parent company, as listeners to this podcast know, of course I work with Houston Community Newspaper, so I encourage everyone to follow all the Chronicle's products. We think they do great work. Uh, I think I do great work as well. So it's always a pleasure, John, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day, man.
My pleasure. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. We just had a great interview with John McClain from the Houston Chronicle discussing the NFL and the Houston Texans. And our next two guests are sitting down with me in Rio de Janeiro after wrapping up their competition at the Rio 2016 Paralympic Games. Brad Snyder, who won multiple gold medals in swimming, and Matt Stutzman, who is one of the top-ranked archers in the world and owns the Guinness Book of World Records for the furthest accurate shot with a compound bow. Guys, this is both of your second Paralympic Games. How does this experience in Brazil compare to London in 2012? Brad, we'll go ahead and start with you. Uh, you know, they represent something completely different for me. You know, London, I was very newly blinded. Uh, I, I was still really kind of finding and figuring my way into the Paralympic world. Uh, really didn't every time I dove into the pool I, I didn't know what to expect I didn't know what I was capable of I didn't know what the competition would bring to bear I didn't know what swimming in front of an arena that lo- that large would be like so in, in many ways it was like being a child being young and being naive and going to the world uh, uh, Disney World for the first time and like just seeing seeing all these immense and crazy things and when you're young you don't really necessarily absorb it all uh, the 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 thing I really wanted to accomplish here in Rio was I knew this time what I was getting into. I know that I can be the best blind swimmer in the world, and I know I'm going to have to work hard to do it. I know what it's like to swim in front of an arena like that. So this go-around, I really wanted to kind of know and understand, go in with a target on my back, and, and win anyway. And I, I think we were able to accomplish almost every one of the goals I set out to do uh, coming into this. But, but most importantly, I was actually able to enjoy this experience a little bit more because of kind of being more of a mature blind person. I wasn't, I'm, I've been blind now for five years. I can per- perceive the world a little bit better than I did in London. And I got to be honest, I had a lot of fun racing. I mean, it was tiresome. Uh, it was difficult to maintain focus and nutrition and rest over a week-long period racing five different, uh, diff- different races. But uh, at the end of things, I just had an immense amount of fun. And it was really awesome to be able to share that with my family and my community through BP and, and everyone else who came down to see these races. Well, it was a lot of fun watching you on Thursday night, set the world record in the 100-meter freestyle. So congratulations on that. And Matt, uh, you were competing in archery at quite a unique venue. That's where Carnival takes place in Rio. What was that experience like for you in kind of a new format at the 2016 Paralympics? Yeah, for me, uh, the new venue, uh, first of all, was amazing. Um, there's a lot of history of Rio happens there, so you get to you know, compete in a historic place like that. Um, there was plenty of seating for everybody who wanted to come and watch. It was a little bit difficult just because of the way the stadium was built and the ends were open, so we had a lot of uh, wind that would funnel kind of like right down the middle, uh, and we were shooting into like 15-mile-per-hour winds at some times. Um, which is usually uh, what we don't shoot in. And so just to be able to learn the wind uh, and learn how all that works and then adapt to it, uh, you know, was, was a challenge. But that's why we're here. We love challenges. We like pushing ourselves. We like to become the best. And everybody had to shoot in it, right? So, you know, I felt like, uh, you know, if everybody had to dealt with, deal with it, then I was going to be fine. And what about the atmosphere here in Rio? I mean, uh, the Brazilian crowd has been phenomenal, very, very loud. Uh, what was your reaction to that? Brad, we'll start with you. It was amazing. Uh, I think when I originally looked at the numbers, I was I thought, um, you know, London was 18,000 in the swimming venue. We went down to 15,000. I thought that was going to make a noticeable difference. It really didn't. Uh, the crowd was absolutely amazing. And one of my, I think it was my second race, the 400 free, uh, we had uh, Matthias Souza, uh, a, t- a competitor of mine, a friend of mine, competing in the same heat, and you would have thought the world was on fire. The, the crowd was just absolutely nuts. Um, from the moment we walked out 
to the moment where we're getting the announcer telling everyone to shut up because they're trying to start the race uh, to in the water. Just it felt like there was an earthquake of sound and it was so cool. Um, it was obviously very warm for Matthias, and it was really cool for him to have that moment. He medaled in that race in front of his home crowd. What a great race that was for him. Uh, and for me, you know, they were cheering for me as well, and it was really cool to be kind of welcomed by the home crowd and feel as a part of their family, a part of their community, and they were just so exciting, so so excited. And it really, it really was the difference in a lot of my races. You know, I, I told a lot of people in the 50 I swam, I went 26-0 in the morning. I didn't change a thing, and I went 25-5 at night, and I, I really think it was a due to the – the crowd energy you can just stand behind the blocks and feel that let it become a part of you and uh let it come out in your racing and it was just so cool so i feel i feel like the welcome here in brazil has been absolutely fantastic um i've learned just a little bit of portuguese bon dia to the brazilians watching um and it's been really fun and to kind of immerse ourselves in a new culture and, and feel like a part of the community here in rio what about for you matt uh for me my second match happened to be against a brazilian um, and so there, he obviously was the crowd favorite. So when he walked out, uh, the people that were there made it sound like there was a million people there <laughs> and they're all cheering. They're all cheering for, you know, the guy you got to shoot against. Uh, yes, they were cheering for you. Right. But, um, you could really see how they were behind team Brazil. Um, and you definitely didn't ever get the feeling of, um, they, I guess the word I'm looking, it's a tough word. I guess I'm looking for, you never got the feeling that they weren't were not totally trained for what the sport was right but they were just super excited that they were had a brazilian shooting against the crowd favorite in which he won so they were extremely happy <laughs> uh but then even afterwards um, i experienced a moment i never felt before and that's even after losing um by one point when i walked off uh everybody was still cheering and clapping for me and i was mobbed by hundreds of people that were just um, saying, you know, we want pictures, you're my hero, you did a good job, you're still the best in the world, and I had lost yet, but they were still there and, and saying that stuff to me. So it made me feel better about the loss, um, uh, but I can't say enough about the people here. So your nickname is the Armless Archer, a foot above the competition. Uh, how did you get involved with archery, and how did you become one of the best in the world? Uh, for me, it was a, a way to provide um, food for my family. Um, I didn't feel very good about the position I was in. Um, I couldn't find a job, so I got into archery to literally put food on the table. Um, it was shortly after I began doing that that I had a friend invite me to a tournament. The tournament didn't go as planned, but a couple days later, uh, I was a sponsor contacted me and said, we want to sponsor you. And I had a friend say, the reason why they sponsor you is because you have no arms and you draw attention to their product, and it's not because you're good. Um, the reality was I wasn't that good, and people were watching me because I had no arms, and I was unique, and I didn't want them to watch me because of that. I wanted them to watch me because I was the best archer in the world. And, yeah, it's cool to say, uh, you know, we're going to go watch the best archer in the world, and then, oh, by the way, you know, he has no arms. So for me, it was just wanting to become the best archer in the world, and my friends saying that, that motivated me to, to, to become who I am today. So, Brad... <clears throat> Your path to the Paralympics is a little bit different. Uh, for those that aren't familiar, you lost your vision in 2011 serving the United States. Uh, can you kind of explain your story of what happened uh, in 2011 and kind of how you found uh, Paralympic swimming? Yeah, so I, I was actually a swimmer before I joined the service. I've been swimming, I've been swimming since I was 11 years old, kind of grew up in Florida, uh, found the sport on the, on the Gulf Coast there, went all the way. It took me through the Naval Academy, and I got to swim there. And, 
uh, it was a it was kind of a great foundation for me to kind of find who I was and find the the value of virtue and kind of understanding those important lessons of how hard work pays off. And but I left the sport in 2006, 2006 uh, with no intention of returning. I moved into different sports. I went into a career in the Navy, uh, all the way to where I was uh, deployed with a special operations unit in Afghanistan uh, in 2011. And uh, we were on a mission, and unfortunately. I stepped on an improvised explosive device there not too far away from Kandahar. Um, it, I was really lucky. The dynamic of the explosion, it occurred just in front of me, which really saved my limbs, uh, but the blunt of the blast hit me in the face. Um, I was able to walk away, but I knew that day that something you know, pretty devastating had happened to my face. I didn't know the true extent of it for some time, uh, but then found out about two weeks later that I had lost uh, my vision, and it would, it's irreparable. Surgeons would not be able to repair my vision. Uh, but at the same time that, you know, while that's a, a bad news blow, we got the good news is everything else is going to be fine. You know, 10 fingers, 10 toes, heart works. And my family was all there and they were all in that hospital room when we heard the news. And we, I think we all made a very rapid decision that, okay, this is, this is what we have in front of us. We're going to be able to get through this. I'm not the first blind guy. I'm not going to be the last. There's all sorts of folks who have figured out how to walk with canes and guide dogs and there's talking phones and Braille and all this other stuff. Let's figure this out one thing at a time. Uh, and that's largely the decision we made. But on, around the same time, you know, while I'm kind of working my way through rehab, there's a lot of people reaching out to me through social media or my local communities. And the overwhelming sentiment was people were, were really sad, were really devastated, were crying, were so sad that this happened to you. You know, we, when we heard the news, we just broke into tears. And people wanted to hug me and tell me, we're so sorry that this happened to you. And I felt like in, in some ways, a lot of people were kind of putting me into this victim box and I didn't want to be in that box. I didn't feel like a victim. I felt like I had volunteered for my service and I had done it deliberately and I knew the, I knew the risks when I did it and I was willing to take those risks. And, and largely I felt like as though I got away relatively clean. You know, a lot of, you know, I have a friend named Tyler who didn't make it back in 2009 and I did and I made it back pretty much unscathed. You know, I lost my vision, but I still have a lot. And I wanted to show people that. So we were at a, at a get-together, a family get-together down in St. Petersburg, Florida, and my old coach kind of came out of the woodworks and just as a joke, more or less said, will we see you at practice the next day? And I said, absolutely, coach, I'll be there. So my mom, you know, drove me down to practice just like she did when I was 11, and I went out there and started swimming back and forth. And what it largely represented that day was this mentality, I'm not going to be a victim in this circumstance. The vision thing is a thing. We're going to get past that, though. There's going to be a way for me to get back to being the – the person that I was and being as happy and as fulfilled as I was as a service member in the Navy. And, you know, I'm not going to be able to figure it out today or tomorrow, but it'll be there. And, and actually, it, it's, it's, we didn't think it would happen all that soon, but it did. And probably like within the next week, someone from the Association of Blind Athletes was calling saying, hey, we hear you're a swimmer, you know, like, have you ever thought about the Paralympics? And that's kind of where it all got started. And one day after the other, it just started escalating ridiculously fast to the point where I got to go represent Team USA in London, which was an amazing experience. But, um, you know, I, I think looking back on things, I didn't really understand the extent of what London represented until afterward. And that's why coming to Rio was so special to be able to do it again. Matt, we were actually at the uh, BP office in Brazil earlier this morning. And one of the things that you were explaining was that London was a little bit different because it was your first time to be in, in that sort of environment. What was the preparation process like, you know, knowing that you had a silver medal, kind of gearing up for this, and now knowing that, you know, everyone knows who you are, that you're not just the guy that doesn't have arms, but you are the world record holder for most accurate shot? Yeah, for me, you know, like uh, like you said, London was uh, my first time, so I was just excited to be there. I didn't actually have any expectations on how well I would do. 
because I really didn't know. Uh, and then I won a silver medal. And then after that, over the next several years, I was starting to win everything. And so people were starting to now know who Matt Stetson was. And so for this games, I really did a lot of mental prep, um, uh, you know, figure out, uh, put myself in this position at home where uh, this, the air, you know, I smell the air or I hear the crowd and I visualize the shot when it goes in the middle and what the crowd reacts and even even to the part of my celebration when I jump out of my chair after I win the matches um, because I knew that what I did in London was kind of <laughs> I just winged it and I knew that I knew that wasn't going to be good enough to get into into uh, you know a medal match in Rio um, the, the I had a guy come up to me and said you you basically in the last four years single-handedly have raised the bar of co- the level of competition um, in your division because for so long you dominated and everybody wanted to beat you. We got your pictures everywhere and we focus on just trying to beat Matt. And so that feels pretty good. So because of that, you have to game plan differently, you know, because everybody's gunning for you and, and you can get in your own head because archery is such a mental sport that you can actually talk yourself out of a medal by just, uh, you know, even thinking negative negatively, you know, like instead of thinking I'm going to step up to the line, I'm going to shoot a 10, you step up to the line and think I cannot miss a 10 which is so weird because if you think I cannot miss a 10, you're going to shoot a 9. And so that's what I did, a lot of mental prep um, coming into the games. And I, I actually just started more enjoying the games uh, after my competition was over because I was so focused on just trying to remain mentally tough. Well, looks like we have a few questions coming in, but before we dive into them, I want to ask you one thing. <laughs> yeah, get it. Well done. All right. So all three of us were in New York City for the Road to Rio 100 Days Out ceremony uh, back in April. And uh, the first lady of the United States was there, Michelle Obama. And uh, Matt, I heard that you had an interesting encounter that you were with, with Mrs. Obama and you were worried about potentially a sniper. Is that right? Yeah. So, uh, so Brad, I don't know, Brad, if you know this, but uh, everyone wore blue but me. I was in a red shirt. And so when we were all standing up there on the podium, I was told to wear team stuff, which I thought was my Team USA Archie shirt. So it was a red shirt. Everybody else is in blue. And I understand that Michelle, we were told not to, like, no phones, don't do any sudden moves, or, you know, because they're obviously watching us because their back's to us, right? And I'm thinking, great, I have no arms. They can't see my arms this entire time, like, right? Well, then it got real awkward when she, after her presentation, she walks off stage and they, you hear some say you're going off the wrong way. So instead of her looking like she's walking the wrong way off the stage, she just starts shaking everybody in the front row's hand and say, you know, good luck in Rio. And the more she got to me, like, I think it was when she got to Brad is when she noticed I had no arms and you could see in her mind, the wheels are turning. Like, what do I do? Like, what's proper, you know, do because so she, so she shakes Brad's hand. And she gets to me, and I stick my shoulder out, and I'm in the midst of telling her, this is how I shake, and she just gives me a hug, right? So now I'm like, oh, great. We're told not to touch her. Keep her, <laughs> keep her arms where they can see them. And I'm like, oh, no, this is, like, not how I want to go out. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, it worked out good because then everybody after me, she hugged. So, so, <laughs> so up to Brad because I think we were beside each other. Yep. Up to Brad, it was handshakes. After me, it was all hugs <laughs> because because now you know you can't feel uncomfortable and like you don't want the media to think they just hugged me because I had no arms, right? So right. now you just gotta <laughs> yeah. It was it was a a good experience. I, I think I even got an email from her husband later, but <clears throat> that, that's kind of a big deal. Yeah, <laughs> like keep your hands off, you know, the first lady. <laughs> all right, so this is for both of you, Brad. We'll start with you. What is your most memorable achievement? 
you know, there's been a lot of really awesome ones. And uh, at this stage in the game, I have to say last night, you know, last night I've been working really hard towards that world record. And I've, like Matt said, you know, swimming is equally as mental as physical. And I've been doing a lot of mental preparation. And I've visualized that moment thousands and thousands and thousands of times coming into that wall and in hearing the time below 56.6 and, you know, another gold and to wrap up that week of a long week of competition. I, I, I knew that was going to be the program. I knew that was going to be the last swim. And I wanted to leave an exclamation mark on that entire week. And when it came true last night, it just feels absolutely amazing. It's, you know, you can visualize something like that so many, many times and your dreams will never match up to how it feels in reality. So it was a really cool moment last night. It's top of mind right now. So as of right now, it's one of the most memorable. That's great. Matt, what about you? Um, for me, I mean, I have, uh, you know, a lot of memories that I, uh, you know, I think I hold pretty close, uh, world records and, and silver in, in, in London. But I think for me, um, it was in 2014 when I went to a professional tournament where there was 1,800 professional archers, which pretty much all of them um, are able-bodied. Um, and I was the only person with a physical disability, and in fact, I was one of seven in the entire world to actually not miss a single point. And that's like that's like going to the Super Bowl and you know tying after a full game's length, and then you go into overtime, right? I mean, that's how it felt for me because I shot against the best in the world from every single country, and they all had hands, and I beat them, and if I didn't beat them, I tied with the guys who shot perfect scores. I mean, how it's hard to, you know, I shot um, 120 arrows, and I didn't miss one single bullseye that's the size of a quarter. You know, like for me, that's that's pretty amazing. That means for me that I'm getting to the level I want to get at. I mean, because that's I want to be the best in the world, and you have to beat the best in the world to be the best in the world, right? So for me, that's a moment that I hold pretty high up um, in my accomplishments. So in the, in the Paralympic movement, what I love about it is it, there are so many people with abilities that are, you know might be overcoming adversity. For you, your parents have been very supportive your entire life. Uh, they never adapted anything in, in your home growing up. They always told you that if, if you wanted to do something, you had to do it yourself. How important was that in your life? That's huge. Um, I mean... If, if you have kids, you know how easy it is to want to just do everything for them, right? They feel they, – they fall down. You want to help them up, you know. Um, but for them, giving me the freedom to get on a bike and ride down a hill and fall and hurt myself so I learned, you know, how to steer better so that, you know, I, I obviously didn't quit. But to, get, to let the, uh, them to give me that kind of freedom so I could do that molded me into who I am now because I think if I was coddled when I was little, I, I wouldn't be here right now because – I'd always be expecting my mom and dad to do everything for me. And I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have been the guy who said, you know what, I need to go get a bow to provide for my family, right? Uh, and saying they don't want to hear the word inspiration associated with Paralympics. And they started to ask Paralympians, why do we not like that? And it goes back to what Matt was saying about you want, we want you to perceive the gold medals, the world records, the accomplishments for those being amazing accomplishments. Matt is the best archer in the world, period. Oh, by the way, he does it without his arms. That's how all of us para-athletes really want to be perceived. I don't want you to perceive me as blind. I want you to perceive me as the fast, one of the fastest swimmers in the world, and oh, by the way, I'm blind. For us, our disabilities aren't a thing. Our disabilities are a classification. It's a, you know, I'm, I swim the 100 freestyle S11. It's just the event that I swim. I swim against other blind people. But for me, the blindness doesn't get in the way. 
So it's not inspiration because I'm overcoming blindness. It's inspiration because of what I'm doing in the pool. Um, we keep talking about overcoming adversity, and it's like we make it this big thing. What I've been trying to say with my story as well as Matt's is the adversity wasn't a big thing. We made it a small thing because we're used to that kind of mindset. You work hard. You know, you, you challenge yourself. You fall down. You get up. If you adopt those mentalities, adversity isn't a thing. It's just you, you, your daily life. Adversity is a part of daily life. And the more we minimize that, the more we're enabled to do the things in the future. So what I love about the Paralympic movement is for each of the athletes here, our disabilities isn't a thing. We've adapted. We've moved on. We're not overcoming adversity. We just are. And we're doing great things. And I think that's the power of the Paralympic movement. It's inspirational because of what we do on the field of competition, not because we're disabled. Yeah, this is my first time to be at the Paralympics, and it's just been a remarkable experience. Uh, I encourage everyone watching right now that if, if you have not experienced the Games, make sure that you find a way to get involved, especially with your local Paralympic sport clubs. Uh, there are great ways to, to help out in the community. Uh, also, make sure to go watch these guys in Tokyo. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Brad, I hear you treat your body like a temple. Can you shed some light <laughs> on your nutrition and eating habits? <laughs> I'm not sure who posted that question. I don't know if I'm being baited into this or not. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Matt's heard me speak before. I think, you know, we've, uh, the nutritionist for the Team USA down here, Liz Broad, I asked her a question a little while ago, who's your least favorite athletes to work with? And she said swimmers because we're notorious for just being garbage disposals. We eat anything. Um, I think uh, when the training load gets so high, you know, my biggest concern sometimes is getting enough calories. And so... This goes back to the old, like, Prefontaine day days, Bill Bowerman. If the furnace is hot enough, anything will burn. So I eat a lot of pizza and spaghetti. So I'm trying to just get those calories in. What about you? Well, uh, it, it's kind of a running joke in archery that if you look at the past winners of archery over the last five years, they all have a belly. <laughs> so uh, we, we use that for stability and keeping us, uh, our center of gravity better. <laughs> so... For, one of the things that I think is cool is I can kind of eat whatever. <laughs> and uh, so when Brad's over there eating a salad with nothing on it, I might have my salad loaded with ranch, and I'm just, mmm, every bite. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you got another question coming in? All right. Brad and Matt, what are your next goals to tackle? Matt, we'll start with you. Um, so <clears throat> this loss is pretty rough for me, uh, but – I'm definitely uh, refocused. In fact, next year I'll actually be shooting for the able body team. Um, there were some complications why I couldn't make it this year. So next year uh, my goal is to participate at the World Cup level with the top archers in the world able-bodied. Um, and, of course, I would like to come back to Tokyo t uh, 2020 and uh, try to regain my spot in the top um, of the archery division. Brad? It was weird to hear you say 2020 just now because we've been saying 2016 for so long, and now it's like, oh, do we got to move the calendar again? Uh, for me, it's it's really hard in the, in the wake of uh, just finishing my swims last night. I've been so vectored in on what happened in Rio or what, what I wanted to happen in Rio. I don't think that I've had the adequate time to, like, redefine that new challenge, but I definitely know that new challenge is on the horizon. I think that's Going back to what I was saying earlier, if you kind of make it a habit to always be seeking that new challenge, seeking a way to develop yourself, make yourself bigger, uh, better, stronger, faster, all that, all those sorts of things, you know, you need to f seek those challenges. Uh, for me, you know, triathlon debuted here, but not for my classification. I think it'd be really neat to uh, get into a different sport, you know, get up on a bike, get into running, uh, f you know, take what I've done in the pool and take that to a new sport. But then also, you know, there are some... There are some marks that I haven't uh, haven't accomplished in the water that I might uh, want to, you know, like 
as great as it was to win three races and set a world record, I came in fourth in the 100 fly, and that doesn't feel good for anybody, you know. And I was right in the thick of that race until the flags. So there's definitely some work to be done there. And so uh, I think, you know, I'll spend some time off thinking about what's the next biggest, uh, best challenge I can get myself into. And I definitely think you'll see me in Tokyo, whether it's in the water or on the triathlon course. Well, if, it, if it's on the triathlon course, Melissa Stockwell, we had her on just a few yeah. days ago. Bronze medalist. Maybe she can uh, give you a tip or two. Yeah, her organization, Dare to Try, is always about providing equipment stuff to adaptive triathletes. So maybe I'll have to call her up and say, help me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, got another question? Right, Brad, how do you make your hair look so good while being blind? <laughs> I woke up this way. <laughs> I'm, I'm his hairstylist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think Matt and I are a little bit jealous. <laughs> yeah. I think it just looks real nice from being just absolutely dead. It's just the sun and the chlorine is killing my hair, and I guess it turns out like to look okay. So I'm not happy about that. <laughs> All right, so uh, since we've had some questions coming in, I've asked you guys a lot of questions. I'm going to turn the tables, and you're going to have a chance to ask each other questions. So, uh, Brad, we'll start with you. What's something you want to know about Matt? Matt, like, uh, what has your family's reaction been to you being here at the Games? I mean, I, one of the most special things to me has been having my family here and being able to climb up into the stands afterward and really just feel the energy of them being in the stands. Like, what was your family's reaction to being here at the Games? You know, um, for me, it, you know, th this game is just a little different because I didn't do as well as I had hoped. Um, but to know that they had my back and no matter what happened, they were going to be there. So after my after my loss, I went up there and I had time to just kind of hang out with them. And we kind of talked about what we were going to do the next day and like go to the beach or just whatever we could do to kind of clear my head a little bit um, from what had just happened. And so for me, it was it's definitely something that held it all together for me because I think without them there, I'd be in my room just kind of stewing a little bit about how uh, everything went down all right now you've got to ask a question for brad mm -hmm. all right so uh this was um my first loss uh, at a paralympics and i know immediately after i was like wanting to go train like right away so your loss what well, you got fourth how did you feel about that race versus obviously the other races that you did better in i mean Surely your mindset when you first got out of the pool after you knew you finished fourth, you know, what was that like, I guess? I think, uh, and you know this, and, like, our our careers are defined more on our on our failures than they are our successes a lot of times. I mean, successes are what gets put on the baseball card or whatever, but it's our failures that push us into being the people that we are. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of what I wanted to do in this four-year cycle had everything to do with I lost the 50 at, in London and uh, Bones and Yang is a great competitor of mine he's a goofy guy and a fun guy to be around and but it doesn't feel good to lose and I, I I'm not I don't want to take anything away from a silver medal because I, you know a lot of people are always say well you didn't lose you got the silver medal but to me like I was shooting for gold and I wanted to win that race and to come up short uh, was the best thing that could have happened to me in London because it fueled me for four years. I changed my training. I got in the weight room. I, I became a bigger person. I became stronger. And that, that feeling is what motivated me over the last four. You know, all athletes are different. We all have to do our own mental prep. And we always have to find ways that are custom fit to us to motivate us. But losing was the best motivator I possibly could have. And that's, you know, coming up short in that fly I had that race and I lost it in the last 15 meters. I broke down. I didn't have the strokes. 
I didn't do enough practice. You know, I'll go back and look at the tapes and figure out what I screwed up. But I, I put that on myself, and I know that that's what's going to motivate me. So, yeah, the, the accolades and the golds and the world records, those are all great. But the best thing that happened to me at this game probably is coming up fourth in that 100 fly because it's going to motivate me for the next go around. Well, it's been great being here in Rio de Janeiro, uh, being able to work with both of you two, uh, also meeting your families. They've been great, very supportive. Uh, I know both of you are active on social media. You've got huge followings back in the United States. Uh, Matt, you've got viral videos coming out like weekly, it seems. Uh, but for those that are interested in following what you do and kind of your journey as we get closer to Tokyo in 2020, what is the best way for them to connect with you? Matt, we'll start with you. Um, on Facebook, it's, it's my strong suit, I guess. Uh, the Armless Archer. Uh, make sure it's the because <laughs> armless archer i think it's something else now but uh the the armless archer um i'm always posting on there and you can uh, follow me there all right brad what about you uh, i'm brad snyder usa across the board apparently brad snyder was taken he's a realtor in arizona so thanks for that uh, but brad snyder usa on on facebook twitter instagram and then i'm supposed to figure out this snapchat thing soon so maybe on snapchat within the next couple months all right. Well, guys, we appreciate it. Uh, congratulations on a great performance in Rio de Janeiro for the uh, 2016 Paralympic Games. And I guess enjoy the last few days uh, prior to the closing ceremony. We appreciate it. Closing time. You've been listening to episode 61 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. And thanks again to John McClain, Matt Stutzman, and Brad Snyder for joining us. Uh, I, Kevin, I thought you killed it with the John McClain interview. And uh, personally, for me, it was great uh, to sit down and discuss uh, you know, kind of the Paralympics and Paralympic movement with Matt Stutzman and Brad Snyder. And it was great to hear their stories, especially Matt's uh, recollection of his first encounter with Michelle Obama in New York City. Uh, quite a memorable moment, but I actually recorded uh, that interview on Friday in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, it was actually for a Facebook live chat. So uh, we had to modify a few things for the uh, the Weekly Brew podcast, but uh, I definitely hope you enjoy the content. Uh, Kevin, uh, how was... Kevin, what was your takeaway from John McLean? Well, he's a delightful human being and a, and a delightful guest. I always enjoy speaking to him. Uh, the thrust of that was I was trying to make him aware that we now work for the same organization. I, I think I was very able to subtly work it in there, and so hopefully uh, established a bond, and he'll think fondly back on his memories being on the Weekly Brew when uh, when it comes time for the Chronicle to call someone up to the big times. Jeremy, what about you? Uh, you know, John McLean, Baylor guy, uh, what did you think of the interview? Uh, I thought it was great. Uh, John McLean is always uh, a solid analyst here um, on the podcast. Uh, honestly, if we had him on every week or every other week at, during football season, I think it, it couldn't be enough. Um, but uh, I also really enjoy the interviews with the Paralympians. Um, I, some of the records that were broken uh, in the Rio Paralympics are just amazing. Uh, some of the runners. Um, and just just the, the sheer effort and will that these guys uh, put into each of their sports despite you know their physical limitations is just really inspiring. So uh, really looking forward to... Um, Really looking forward to uh, the future here uh, on the podcast as we keep going into football season. Yeah, it was interesting that you mentioned the records that have been broken. Uh, there were actually four uh, visually impaired runners in the 1500 meter, uh, you know, the mile race, essentially, uh, that ran faster times than anyone did at the Olympic Games, which is insane. Uh, also, uh, last Saturday at the uh, Olympic Park, there were there were 167,000 people uh, there in attendance that day for the Paralympic Games, and the most that 
the Rio Olympics actually had was 120,000. So uh, there was definitely a lot of support for the Paralympics and the Paralympic sport movement in Rio de Janeiro. But, uh, you you know, again, Jeremy, you just mentioned uh, football and uh, discussing that more on the podcast. But uh, Kevin actually found a, a great article this week from Vite magazine, and it was discussing the city of Houston and whether or not it is a hotbed for NFL talent. And if you just look at that list, there is so much NFL talent within the city, and it's probably headlined by Andrew Luck, the quarterback of the Indianapolis Colts. And uh, Kevin, both my high school, uh, both of our high schools have actually produced two professional athletes right now, uh, headlined by uh, Danny Amendola and Daniel Lasco. Uh, But also, you know, you look at names like Katie's high schools, Andy Dalton, Stratford's Andrew Luck, Clements's Derek Carr. I mean, there's just so much talent within the city. Is this the best city in America in terms of producing NFL talent? Uh, I, did, I, I did not see similar articles for other cities, but just looking at this list, it would certainly make you think that's the case. Uh, of course, Danny Amendola, I recall very well from high school. He was playing while I was part of the marching band. I'm sure that's no surprise to anyone who knows me that I was uh, a member of the band and not the football team. Danny Amendola's dad, Willie, actually uh, famously got hit by a cart uh, in a Dallas stadium during the 2000, oh man, I forgot, 2011 state championship, I think. And uh, it was uh, one of my favorite videos of all time that I watch uh, you know, on a weekly basis almost. <laughs> poor, poor Coach Amendola just getting hit by this uh, driverless cart. You should certainly go look that video up if you haven't. Not relevant to Houston as a, a hotbed for recruiting, though. Interesting to me were the teams that have the most Houston players. So I can't quiz you guys. You've all read the articles, but uh, perhaps the listeners can speculate. I'll, I'll list them out here. The Cincinnati Bengals had the most at six, and then the Miami Dolphins and Tampa Bay Buccaneers uh, have five apiece, which uh, which I thought was interesting. But again, you know, you draft in the NFL, so you're not going to have like regional ties or anything but uh but i wouldn't have guessed that uh, just off the top of my head yeah that's absolutely incredible i'm looking at this list here and i i had no clue that houston uh was such a huge producer for nfl talent um i you know when i think about houston uh football players i, I immediately think of andrew luck i mean we had the same orthodontist growing up uh, and uh, where i grew up was just a couple miles from from his home and where he played there at stratford so uh but this is a, a just absolutely intriguing and i'm sort of wondering now that in relation to college, uh, the University of Houston, of course, is on the upswing in college football. And so I'm kind of wondering if all of this talent that Houston is producing in the future, where is that going to go? Is it going to go mainly to U of H now that they're on the up? Or is it going to sort of disperse the rest of the Texas schools in, in the South and the SEC? So that'll be really interesting to look forward to here in the future. But uh, there's no doubt that Houston is a powerhouse of athletic talent when it comes to football. I'll tell you, I've been talking to some of the kids in the in the Cypher area in particular, but also throughout Klein, Tomball, I mean, the various areas in Houston that I cover. And there's still this very strong bias towards the SEC. So there's some top flight recruits that I won't name names here, but uh, that are still, that are you know not signed yet, but committed. And, uh, and they're really focused on the SEC. So I think that getting to a Power 5 conference would be a real game-breaking change for U of H because that's still the last domino to fall in the minds of these absolute top shelf recruits because they want to be seen on that biggest stage and U of H as good as they are at the moment still don't have any claim to you know football's largest stage with the biggest money and the brightest lights and so forth so I think that if that is accomplished and I hope that it is soon then uh, there's really I can't see a reason kids would want to go elsewhere if they're from here. Yeah, I think a lot of it's going to come down to whether or not the University of Houston actually gets a bid to the Big 12 Conference or Power 5 Conference. Uh, Still a lot to be determined uh, on whether or not the Big 12 will actually expand, but the Cougs are definitely making their case on the gridiron this year. Uh, Dominating win this past week against Cincinnati, and uh, you know, if they stay healthy, the only challenging game on their schedule is that Louisville game on November 17th, so Coach Tom Herman 
has those Cougs rolling right now. They are a fun team to watch, especially if you like football within the city. But uh, in terms of things that we want you to get involved with, we want you to leave us iTunes reviews. Kevin, tell the listeners how to leave a review on iTunes. I'll tell you what, hit me up personally at K Michael Cook on Twitter, uh, 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 K Michael Cook at gmail.com. It, just reach out to me and I will walk you step by step through how to do this. It's pretty simple, really. You go search for our podcast on your mobile device. Uh, when you bring up uh, the search result, uh, one of the tabs there is reviews and ratings. We need those reviews and ratings. Helps us get heard by more people and show up in more searches, which is very important. So our listenership's been growing very steadily. Thank you for all you guys. There's something like eight or 9,000 of you now. We, we've lost count at this point, but, uh, but we want more. We're, we're hungry for more. And the best way to do that is to give us iTunes reviews. So if you listen to the show, if you enjoy the show, and I know that you guys do, because uh, certainly you've turned down on Facebook and so forth, then just uh, go to iTunes. And uh, and if you need, I will hold your hand through the process of writing a review. I'll even write it for you. I have uh, 40 or 50 just kicking around in my head. I'd be happy to send you by email, and you can just copy and paste. So, uh, you know, we, we'll make that really easy for you. Just give us some reviews, please. A little desperation <laughs> there at the end. That was kind of sad there at the end, but really funny. Uh, so make sure to go check out iTunes. Uh, leave us some feedback on there tell us what you like about the show give us guest ideas show ideas topic ideas anything we will take into consideration you'll be our listener of the week but in addition to itunes we want to make sure that you follow us on our social media channels you can search weekly brewcast on facebook twitter instagram and youtube you also check out our website weeklybrewcast.com but we had a fun time this week with john mcclain matt stutzman and brad snyder we hope that you enjoyed all of the interviews and guys it's great to be back in the united states at the we dessert studios it was, it was nice getting together with you all uh, today on Sunday uh, producing this episode but uh, we had a good time we hope you enjoyed the episode as well for my co-hosts this week Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton I'm Austin Staten we'll see you next week and guys remember no matter who you are where you go or what you do this week always always brew response you've been listening to the weekly brews 